so I want to talk about ecological rationality later. But before we get to that, you know, as I said before we started recording, I'd like to ask a bit about the biography section of your website. Okay. So maybe can we start with what is the left-handed Solomon grip? <laughs> oh, wow. You've had a dig, a deep dig there. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this is referring to croquet, which is a game I enjoy playing. And there's loads of clubs dotted around the world that most people just don't even know about. So I've been playing since I was a teenager. And it gets very competitive. And different people have different uh, styles of play. <laughs> and different people hold the mallet in totally different ways. It's not kind of like cricket or golf where there are very, very standard set of grips most of the time. So some people kind of hold the mallet with uh, knuckles pointing forwards, and some people hold it with their knuckles pointing backwards, and I have one hand at the top. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, so they bend down more, and they their hands are lower down if their if their palms are. Oh, sorry, forward. yeah, you're bending. Okay, so okay, sort yeah. of pushing the mallet forwards. Uh, I see, I see. And and some of us, I'm one of the ones where I have one hand one way up, and the other the other way up. So I've got my knuckles on the top, pointing forwards. I think this is how most people in the world, just as a kid, will naturally hold a, a mallet. Is you know one hand facing forwards, and then lower down, you're holding it so that you can put some force in with the bottom hand. Anyway, the Solomon grip is um, is this grip that a, a famous player became extremely good with, where both his knuckles are pointed forward. So it's very unusual at the time. So since then, you know, 50-odd years ago, or more than that now, it's been referred to as the Solomon grip. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, that was from a... Um, on your website, there's a link to a article you wrote about how to beat better players. Ah, like right, yeah. Okay. And I think there was one... <laughs> that's specifically from a section where you wrote about something like if you want to improve, you have to change up your technique, even if you want to go back to the one actual one. Uh, yeah. You kind of try a different style out and then that can help you. Yeah, it's funny how if you try something a bit different and when you go back to doing your basic thing, it suddenly seems easier. You've almost freed yourself up. I wonder how much it applies to other sports. I mean, if you've had, I've been famous cases, you know, with, basketball players trying to try out baseball or something and then they return to basketball and they're they're relaxed because they're doing what they know they can do suddenly <laughs> i mean isn't there also this thing where this is not yeah this is more similar to what you just mentioned isn't there something that i don't know where i got this from that if you try a different sport like bowling or something then you get better at some basketball throws or something like that because there's a certain kind of shared movement like not obviously the entire right. movement but parts of it are kind of shared so you can kind of transfer something you learned in one tunes sport up the muscles another. differently yeah that might be yeah. the, i don't know about that but it, it sounds plausible for sure yeah yeah or i like how lots of athletes do ballet or something because it helps them like right. body awareness and that kind of stuff even if you're a swimmer or a football player or whatever yeah can, okay yeah maybe it uh tunes up your core muscles better or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. No, but um, so the, I mean, the reason obviously I'm not that interested in the left-handed Solomon grip per se, sure. uh, but I was just curious how you got into croquet because um, I have to admit I think the only game of croquet I've ever seen was um, from Alice in Wonderland right. um, with the flamingos <laughs> as yeah. the what's it called mallet you said right yeah sure but I think they use them more like golf clubs from the movement 
yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but how do you get into? I mean, I grew up largely in Germany, where I don't think this thing exists at all. Uh, there's not much in Germany. Yeah. No, there is a little bit. There are a few clubs dotted around in Germany. I lived in Germany for eighteen months, but uh, yeah, back in England, I've, when I was a kid, I used to think that we played croquet back on the our like back lawn. You know, each summer we'd knock in some hoops and tap some balls around, and I thought, well, this is fun. You know, I didn't think much more yeah. of it. And then <laughs> my dad joined a club, and it was half an hour's drive to get there. So I was thinking, well, half an hour there, half an hour back. He's driving for an hour to play a game we've got on our back lawn. I thought, well, is this <laughs> like the first sign of senility? Because yeah. why would you do that? I mean, that's totally nuts. And then uh, one day I was driving down there. We were driving down to Paul for a different reason. And he said, oh, I just want to stop in at the club. And I'd got fed up with hearing about this place. Oh, God, not this croquet club, for God's sakes. And, um, yeah, we drove in, and I saw these huge, perfectly flat lawns, you know, with the grass cut down to two millimetres long, and balls just rolling and rolling and rolling, hardly stopping at all. And I just instantly thought, oh, well, I wouldn't mind having a quick go. (laughs) And uh, sort of instantly hooked from actually seeing a proper lawn. So yeah, got into it from from that point really, <laughs> and then just did it a lot. Or so I mean, it, it, on your you know on your, web, on your website it says you were the British men's champion and world number three. And yes, it sounds very impressive. But then again, I don't know anyone who actually played croquet, so I wonder like, <laughs> how. I don't know. Like this is number three out know. of four players. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not exactly. Um, I mean, you obviously must have been still. You know, better than the people at your club and that kind of stuff. But oh, sure, um, sure. I mean, when you take it up when you're young, yeah, I think a lot of uh, most of the top players took it up when they were young, um, and it takes quite a while to get decent. You know, you've got to be playing it for kind of ten years before you get sort of properly good and national kind of level. But yeah, I mean, I used to just go down to start with just once a week for the first couple of years, just like club evenings, and. Uh, I was the youngest by far, you know, early teens. And all <laughs> these old five people. Five generations or. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of them were over not 50. But, I mean, I kind of enjoyed it because, yeah, it's quite a sociable game. And I sort of figured, oh, I can chat with some of these people, you know, get some insights on life. You know, how much <laughs> do you aim for studying? How much do you aim for enjoyment of work? How much do you just work to yeah. do other things, holidays, whatever? And so, you know, I, when I wasn't playing, I would be sort of gently quizzing all these nice old people about their lives um, and, you know, finding out what they regret in life and that sort of thing. It's, it's all good for me, I think. <laughs> so it's almost like golf where the sport is more a vehicle to networking. <laughs> well, it was at that time, yeah. <laughs> and then gradually, of course, you build up friends in the game. It's like anything, isn't it? You know, you, you do it for a while and you, you start to build some good friendships. And these days I do it as much as anything for the social side, just for the enjoyment. Yeah. Do you still do it then? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Still play. Yeah. Just not competitively or, or still? I play. I do still try and play competitively. Um, I seem to have lost my edge a little bit of late. Um, <laughs> it's partly with moving around, you know. I mean, uh, the trouble with academia is they make you work quite hard. <laughs> so I haven't had that much time whilst going through the ranks from PhD and so on. Um, yeah. So, so that's kind of yeah. stopped. Or when when did you kind of stop doing it? Like, it seems like you did it more intensely until a certain point and then less, or? 
Well, I got really good kind of nearly 20 years ago now, back in 2003, 2004. I was probably at my at my best. And then it's been sort of a bit of a downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I, I can still, you know, I can still occasionally take games off really good players. But it's just the odds, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, yeah. You obviously have to be, you know, a complete novice. The, <laughs> the odds are still not very good, right? Oh, no. Uh, yeah, you'd struggle. If you're a novice, you, you wouldn't beat me, basically. <laughs> I mean, you'd have first have to, exp- I mean, explain to me what the rules are. That would be step sure. one. <laughs> like, well, what's even the objective of this? I guess you have to hit it through the hoops or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's very like snooker, you know? When you, so in snooker, when you put a ball, then you get another shot. And then croquet, when you go through a hoop, you get another shot. And then you'd like go through a circuit a bit or... Yeah, rather than six pockets, you've got six hoops. And you've actually got the same eight colours of balls, but you only play with four balls at a time. So it's two. one person has two balls, the other person has two balls. And yeah, there's a set course of hoops that you've got to get your, your own balls through. And it, when you hit another ball, you get two extra strokes. And one of those is uh, called oh, so a croquet stroke. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. So you build breaks. It's very light snooker in that respect. You're thinking ahead, not just about the next hoop, but how yeah, you're going to set yourself up for afterwards. <laughs> yeah, quite tactical. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's like lots of sports, right? In that you, even if you play tennis or something, you don't just hit a shot to win the point. You hit a shot to get the they opponent to be yeah. somewhere or whatever, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Always building yeah. for the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you play much? Uh, tennis or croquet? <laughs> well, tennis, presumably, given that you didn't yeah. play the rules of croquet. Uh, no, I mean, I, I I used to play. I actually never played that much. I start, I, the problem is I started when I was, I think, 13 and a half or something. Um, yeah. And then I, I was pretty good pretty quickly, but, you know, I'd be playing against people who'd been played for six, seven years after another time. So it was still competitive. So that's, you know, how I was, you know, talented in that way, but. I still usually lost because I'd just been playing it for half a year or a year. Yeah. So I stopped like a year and a half or two years later because I just lost most of the games against people who had like five times as much training as me. Yeah, a bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's also with, I don't know whether this is the same with croquet, but with tennis, it's also expensive because you, right. you know, you have the courts and you have to book them. And in, the, in our case, the tennis courts were, my parents had to drive me there. So, you know, I could train like twice a week. That was just, pretty much the upper limit in terms of like what times i could put in yeah one of my nephews played quite a lot of tennis and it did seem to be expensive croquet is a lot cheaper um because you basically just pay to be a member of a club and then you can borrow a mallet or you know ultimately only need one mallet it's not like golf where you need a whole set of different <laughs> yeah. clubs um okay so, yeah it's not bad yeah, no, with tennis, and then you need then all the equipment around the, yeah. the shoes, the the also the balls. I mean, if you 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 know, there's a reason why in tennis they change the balls are every six points. Um, you know, not like individual point or like six every six games, right? They actually change the balls. So yeah, obviously we didn't do that as like fourteen year olds or something. But there's a point where you have to replace those, the racket, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, so it's, it's it's something. I don't know. I'm assuming this is the same in croquet because, as far as I can tell, it's the same with almost all sports. Where to have a good game, you need someone who's your more or less your level. So I ha- I've had surprisingly. I'm. I mean, I guess I'm just one of the few people who actually 
had lessons in, in tennis for like a year or two. Um, and that seems to put me ahead, you know, most people I know. Um, of course, anyone who's actually really trained tennis is going to be way better than me. But it's surprisingly, it's still the case so that, I don't know, it's just very diff it's difficult to find someone who, where you can have a decent match um, without it being very one-sided. Yeah, you need that more for tennis than you do for croquet because there's a handicap system in croquet, um, which I don't think works very well yeah. in tennis. You know, if you got a certain number of points given to you, it wouldn't, you still wouldn't be able to have yeah. a good game, you know. Whereas in croquet, you know, you can have this kind of sense of trying to catch up where yeah, someone's okay. had, like, they get extra strokes because it's a static ball game. It's different. Yeah, yeah. I think you could have a similar thing in snooker, but for some reason they don't use it. You, could, you know, you could have extra shots occasionally in snooker. would work quite well, I think, but I've never actually seen that used. <laughs> no, the problem in, ten in tennis, it just doesn't work because basically if, you know, if my serve, if you, like there's very little you can do if you can't hit return my serve, right? Yeah. Like, am I supposed to only have a second serve? Or that's the most you can do, but... Yeah, it's, I mean, even like even if you were to say, okay, I start, you start with one point more per game or something, it's still kind of boring if I can just yep. hit through you because you don't know how to return hard shots or something. Yeah, sure. It's just, there's no point to it. Yeah. Um, so like, I have had times where I had someone with who were kind of similar level, and that's really cool because then I can play regularly. But you kind of, yeah, you kind of need that kind of thing, and I haven't really been looking out for that, so I haven't really played much. I just watch way too much and then waste half of my life doing that um, <laughs> when you're not doing podcasts <laughs> yeah because that's the only thing about tennis there's a world-class game pretty much every day of the year yeah it's not like football where you have one or two games basically you can watch per week or mm. the weekend every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah. anyway um but yeah but i'm just curious at a kind of meta level is there anything from croquet that you learned that you're using in your science maybe not i guess immediately direct skills but um i don't know not so much from the croquet itself that's just enjoyment of hitting balls and making them do what you want but yeah just the social side you know people the old guys used to say you know you'd <laughs> when you're on your deathbed you don't look back and and say, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. You know, they'd give me advice like that, you know, where I'd sometimes think about it and think, oh, yeah, okay, that's sort of interesting view on life, that, you know, find the balance. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the lesson from croquet is to play more croquet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that probably goes for most uh, games <laughs> and sports, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a more kind of general question is also, I mean, I mean, on your on your website, it mentions lots and lots of stuff you've done. I mean, learning German, doing various kind of dances, snooker, table tennis, go, Wing Chun, circus skills, uh, scuba diving, whatever. How do you how do you actually combine that kind of stuff with, as you said, academia taking up a lot of time? And yeah, so. <laughs> well, some of that lot I did before I got properly back into academia. So I've got a somewhat unusual route in life where I, well, I'd first done a diploma in engineering, then I did a maths degree. That was like hard work, so I didn't have A-level maths at the time. But then I got a job in industry for 11 years, um, analyzing aircraft systems. And so during that time, after the first, you know, 
only the first few months of that job. I then really had my weekends and evenings fully free, um, and I could learn dancing and all sorts of things. There was I lived near a college where they had evening classes and all sorts of things, so I could go and try out different options <laughs> in different terms, uh, which I really enjoyed, actually, sort of spreading my mental wings a bit. And I did that for quite a while before I decided, oh, right, let's, you know, I want to do uh, more research. And the best way of doing that in life is to have gone and got a PhD. So at that point, I kind of uh, returned to academia and uh, started off with a master's course and then my PhD. So kind of had somewhat less time, I would say, since <laughs> re-engaging properly with academia. <laughs> so that's all from before, basically. Some of it, quite a bit of it's from before. Um, yeah. Some some interests that just sort of tinker along, you know, so things like bronze casting. I didn't, didn't know any of that before academia, but, you know, some universities have really good resources. So when I was over in the States, they, they had this lovely center where you could do glass blowing and, and ceramics and all sorts of different things. And uh, <laughs> they had some nice bronze making courses so that's where i took that up yeah. i see well, <laughs> can't be so working you, all the time <laughs> yeah you mentioned that it's that you sold one of the things i'm curious right. i saw on the was that the thinker with the croquet mallet or was that a different thing the thinker um, i just saw it okay you had the on the, ah, the book no, you edited <laughs> i was wondering whether that was photoshopped uh where you have right. the thinker by Rodin, and then he has like a, a croquet mallet right yeah um whether that right. was photoshopped or whether that was actually something you replicated <laughs> with an added right to. okay so right so firstly no the thing i sold was different to that Okay. And that picture that you've seen on the book I was an editor of, that was that was when I was in Germany. I was editing a book on croquet tactics, and they had the the thinker as one of their statues outside a museum there. So I just propped my croquet mallet oh, up against okay. it um, oh, okay. And okay. with my partner and uh, <laughs> took a picture of it and then just kind of etched out the back the background of it. So it worked quite well. <laughs> Okay. What was the sculpture of that you did then end up? Oh, well, funnily enough, that was also croquet related. (laughs) That's got a theme, it would seem. Yeah, that was of, um, so it was a bronze hand holding a croquet ball against another ball. And I made uh, the balls look like the world. So the sea was the pattern of the croquet ball. It's got a sort of texture to it. And then the land masses rose out of that, but they were like croquet ball size. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I sold it to a another croquet player <laughs> it, <laughs> it just won the world championships and was over the moon and uh, i'd taken this along to the event to show people because i thought i'd be interested and he was very interested in buying it so i thought what the heck it saves me lugging it back <laughs> yeah well, and now you can say you're a i don't know what the term is but a successful artist right a professional <laughs> artist yeah. who's selling his work I suppose, uh, well, yeah. I mean, again, it's just fun. It's really nice making stuff, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, that's one thing I noticed that, I don't know whether this is intentional on your part, but almost all of the hobbies you meant, or practically all of the hobbies you mention on, or not hobbies, but like activities on your website are things that are very different from doing research. They're all either physical 
or they usually you know there's something to do with making things manually or manipulating things manually be it sports or whatever mm -hmm. was that is that like an intentional i guess some of the stuff was from before but the stuff that you're doing now is that like an intentional move to kind of have balance or something that's um not not you know, that i'm consciously aware of <laughs> okay I mean, I do. I enjoy thinking, and yeah, work's got plenty of thinking involved in it. But um, you know, croquet's got lots of thinking in it as well, and and dancing. You know, partner dancing is still having to think ahead, and you know, think about the music and what moves are going to fit, and what your partner's capable of, and what you feel like at the time. So I think most things, even you know, if you're making something out of bronze you start off with wax you've got to think how are you going to shape the thing and then you know it's quite interesting once you've made something how are you going to convert that into bronze you've got to think how you put these sprues and things on it for when you turn it upside down to pour some stuff pour out the wax and and uh, pour in the bronze when it's a different way up and so on so there's I think most things in life, when you start trying to do them well, involve quite a bit of thinking. Um, yeah, definitely. So. I mean, I guess the the point, um, or maybe why I noticed this, is because, I mean, I haven't been doing it much recently, but for a while I did quite a lot of photography. And ah. I specifically chose that because it was unlike research. Because I said, like, okay, I don't have, want something where I can move. I want something where I can be outside, but don't have to. I can. Yeah. It can be you know, alone or with other people. Um, it's, I'm not thinking verbally, but I'm just looking at things or, you know, I, that kind of thing. So I was, I was very intentional about like, I need something that just takes you out of the mindset of thinking verbally or logically about things and just going, yeah. I don't like this. Let's see what happens if I move 30 centimeters to the right or whatever. Nice. But yeah. I guess you didn't think about it. No, I've just kind of... <laughs> Through life, I've just kind of randomly found things that seem to appeal, and I've tried them out and <laughs> enjoyed them. Um, and if I start on something and I don't seem to be enjoying it, then I just drop it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <That's laughs> yeah. Um, I guess you already mentioned the whole engineering and then maths. I guess the question is, uh, why did you want to do, like, why did you go back, basically, to university or... Right. What kind of was the thinking behind that? Was it like, um, I don't know, you were fed up with work in that sense? or Yeah, so it wasn't so much that I was fed up with it, but I thought that I might become fed up with it. So um, I'd been doing it for quite a few years, and I could do the job fairly well. When I'd started the job, I started as an analyst. So what did the job involve? Yeah, so I was looking at military aircraft, for the Navy, usually, helicopters and occasionally fixed-wing aircraft as well. But it's mainly looking at uh, helicopters and working out what the crew should do with our equipment, searching for submarines and search and rescue and that sort of thing. Um, but also how we ought to develop the aircraft to make them better at their jobs. So it's quite an interesting job, and I enjoyed it. But once I've been doing it for a little while, you know, a few years in, they start gradually promoting you up the ranks which is good in terms of salary but it yeah. means that you're managing people rather than looking at the technical problems yeah. and i could do it i think i was a successful manager people were happy to have me as a, a project manager but i i didn't enjoy it as much 
And I thought, hmm, if I carry on doing this for much longer, then I'm not going to get the opportunity to change. So I started off looking at other jobs. My first thought was not, hey, let's go and you know do a PhD or anything. I started looking around other kind of jobs, research jobs and things, the possibility of work for the government in some other form and stats department or something like that. But whatever I looked at, I thought, hmm, once I've been there for a couple of years... I would find myself back in this role of managing people. So I thought, well, I think what I enjoy is the technical thinking, and I'm, you know, reasonably good at it. So how do I get a job like that for years to come? And again, you know, I'd known people, older people that had done research throughout their lives, but they'd had PhDs. And I thought, well, maybe that's the route to go. And it was kind of, big sucking of teeth moment for a while where I thought, oh, can I really go without a salary for that long to do a PhD? (laughs) And I was pretty naive at the time, (laughs) to be honest. I'd kind of imagined that I would go off, get a PhD, and then just get a job, you know, return to having a permanent job, but in something research-oriented. And, of course, it doesn't really work like that in (laughs) academia, right? You... By the time you finish your PhD, then you need to get a postdoc or maybe another postdoc, try and find your own funding, all sorts of different routes. But it's very insecure for a while before you finally get yourself a, a solid permanent position or tenured tenured position. So, yeah, so I'd, I'd kind of naively, I thought, well, let's start off with a master's course just to check that I'm happy to spend several years studying. So I, yeah, I found this course at Bristol was quite a good course, machine learning. I thought that'd be an interesting topic, and I've probably got the skills to do it. So, um, yeah, I booked myself onto the course and handed him a notice. I've been there for eleven years, and thought I'm sure this will be fine. <laughs> and then I look back a few years later. I look back and thought, my God, if I'd really understood how academia worked, I wouldn't have taken that risk. You know, <laughs> like it worked out okay for me. But um, it doesn't work out for everyone. And when I, you know, since seeing the risks, I think, crikey, if I were put in that situation again and actually understood what I was taking on, I probably wouldn't do it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I have two points about your two questions about your decision to go into academia because you were managing people, because you're being promoted into management positions in industry. The first is, could you just not have taken the promotion and continue doing the technical thing? And the second thing is, isn't that what happens in academia? That the more senior you become, the less you do the technical stuff and the more you manage people, like PhD students, postdocs, that kind of stuff. And you become almost more like an advisor than an actual scientist. Yeah, so that's true of a lot of people. I do know some people in academia that have been incredibly successful and are still very much at the coalface because that's where they choose to be. So, you know, a couple of FRSs that I've worked with are really top of the tree. But, you know, they're very much doing their own research still a lot of the time, although they manage people as well. You know, they've got that bandwidth to to kind of do both. So it's not automatic that you have to. And, yeah, going going back to my job that I'd had in industry, could I have turned down the promotions? Well, to some extent, I I partly did at the time you know they they asked me if i'd take on some management things i said well no i'd prefer to stay on this 
technical thing I'm on at the moment. But I could see that it would become gradually more and more problematic pushing down that route. I could have done it, but it wouldn't have been good in the long term in terms of my either my salary or my, you know, it would have just become a bit awkward in the company if I'd become sort of more expert than I should be for, you know, what I was. <laughs> I mean, in that particular company, it just wouldn't have worked particularly well. There are doubtless some companies that do research and development where you could do that. But from what I looked around at, I didn't, I didn't find much in, in that way. So most of the time, I think you're right that the better you get at things, you often get shuffled up the management route. Um, yeah. And it's one of these mysterious things, right, across the world. I mean, it happens in the army. It happens basically in any kind of discipline. If you're good at doing your job, you get moved on. You do another job. And if you're bad at doing your job, then you get stuck with doing that job because <laughs> yeah. you don't get promoted. And it's kind, of, it's kind of madness, really, how we set up society, that if you're good at something, then you go off and do something else. And if you're bad at something, then you get stuck doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the, what's it called? The something effect or whatever, that everyone's promoted to their level of incompetence. Right, yeah. Because when you're really good, you get promoted until you basically aren't good at your job anymore. And then you get stuck there. Um, (laughs) Which is kind of cynical, but also (laughs) more accurate than we'd probably want it to be. Sadly. Yeah, there is some truth to it, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's many examples, I think, of academics who are great researchers and terrible PIs. You know, there's many examples of that where you think, like, this person shouldn't supervise people because they're just not good at managing people. Yeah. You know, that's what you do once you've got your PhD and you're you're good at that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I guess there should be more like just research scientist positions where you don't have to apply for funding or whatever. But is that I mean, you've worked in the UK, Germany and the US. Is that is it the similar system everywhere or are there I don't know, some countries where it is more likely I mean, for example in the UK, right? You as far as I can tell, you're pretty much the academic route is to start off as a lecturer or senior lecturer if you start if you have more postdoc experience or something. Yeah. Basically you have to right. teach. Whereas in Germany I think there are more opportunities to just do science and without teaching, um, or with less teaching. Yeah, from what I've seen, they're all fairly similar. You know, the differences are small enough that you can largely ignore them. It's not like by moving countries you'll really get much of a change. So at least that's that's from my fairly low level of what I've seen. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I have one kind of last question before we get more into the actual topic of ecological rationality, which is you had this one interesting sentence on your website, which was along with Tim Fawcett. Is that who you said? Oh, yeah. Is it Fawcett? Or? Yeah, okay. Tim Fawcett. Along yeah. with Tim Fawcett, I came up with a method of reducing exam marking by almost 50%. Saving Bristol biology lecturers thousand hours of intensive work each year. Although, by the way, you wrote Bristol rather than Bristol. But oh, did I? Thanks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just copied right. that sentence into my note thing, and it immediately gave me a <laughs> like a red underlines of Bristol. Uh, anyway, sorry. The the question I didn't want to like point that error at the typo out. Uh, the quest the point was more to yeah. What did you do to to well. Yeah, so, I mean, it's incredibly simple, actually, is you just kind of, they've got all these historical records, you know, of of what exams people have taken, and you can work out what 
a student what their overall grade will be, basically. If you know all their marks, then uh, you can stick them all effectively into a massive spreadsheet and go, okay, here are all these different students. Here are all their marks they've got through the different years of their degree. And, you know, we know how they combine. We know what the different weightings are. And, hey, presto, this one's got a 66 on average. This one's got a a whatever. Um, And so you can then group them up and say, well, this is what the different students would get. And then you can say, having got all that data, you can then play tunes with it and say, well, what if we only have half the amount of data from each year? You know, what would happen if we just reduced the amount of marking? You know, you only mark one of every two scripts kind of thing. What would happen? Or what would happen if you took out a third? You know, you do all sorts of tunes with it. And so Tim and I built this spreadsheet, got all the data from the department, stuck it all in there and went, you know, it's really kind of a blunt tool to look at what seems like a refined question, how much can we reduce things because people were maxed out. And, when, and you know, it literally started with, well, what happens if we chop it in half? And my first thought was, well, it's going to be too extreme, but let's ex- at least see what the effect is there. And it had an amazingly small effect on the marks because there were so many different marks feeding into the system you get the sort of central limit theorem applying of you know how many how much benefit you get from extra marks and after a while you don't really get much benefit the the students that are working hard and and getting good marks tend to get good marks further down the line as well and as long as you're taking some marks still from year 2 and some from year 3 or whatever then you uh, what we found was that hardly anyone changed their overall degree classification if you chop them in half so yeah, when we when we took this back up to the like the management and said, "Here you go, here's some quantitative analyses for you," they went, "Oh my god, right, okay, let's let's act on this." They ended up changing it in a different way, but they knew from from that analysis that they could they could really cut back a lot on the amount of marking that was being done, and they rolled it out to other departments as well so i don't know in the end how much it got reduced across the whole university but certainly a lot just in the one department so it's probably something that could be looked at all across you know across the world the uk and potentially the world i don't know <laughs> be interesting to try it out where i can't yeah yeah so just to understand this correctly you basically said the idea is that there's just redundant information about how good of a student someone is, basically, because you have all yeah. these different marks. Okay, But doesn't that, at least in theory, kind of miss the point of marking X something, in the sense that marking is also supposed to tell you what to improve, so that the marking isn't necessarily there to primarily, I mean, in some sense, it's primarily there to kind of categorize people into groups of how good they are. I mean, it seems to me like I'm imagining right now if I just didn't get certain things, then I wouldn't know what to improve and or I just wouldn't prepare for it because I knew I had one exam less. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so you can't structure the exams where you just take things out because, of course, it's the motivation for them to learn and then the feedback that they get for, yeah. for that learning. So, so some things like the projects or particular coursework would definitely still remain. But when it comes to things like exam marking, you can basically you can have a system where the student even does the same amount of work, and you, you, you know you, if you just mark one of the questions rather than two. Oh, so if you were going to be marking 
you know, six questions, then you could just mark three of them instead. And the overall outcome across the board would would still come out well. It's it's because of what you raised there that they didn't just do this blunt approach and go, right, okay, let's chop everything in half. They came up with something more subtle. But knowing that there were so many redundant marks in the system meant that they could go, okay, it doesn't matter if we're, you know, we don't have to be highly fine-tuned on exactly how well they've done on every course here in order to know their overall degree result. Um, There can be a bit more coarseness within, with a confusing term to say coarseness within a course. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, yeah. With an A. Yeah, but the, uh, so then you just told the students you'll be writing, I don't know, six answers and three of them randomly will be marked or? Well, that was our kind of initial suggestion. But as I say, they ended up doing something a bit more convoluted where they changed the structure and, and the length of exams as well. They realized they could reduce the length of exams and that way the mm-hmm. students write less and there's less to mark. Um, but <laughs> yeah. they still need to have revised as much and so on. <laughs> yeah. A more general question, do you think there's much of a point to this whole grading exams and that kind of stuff? I always felt like, I mean, uh, I'm, I think, very critical of this stuff in general, and in part because I'm not good at exams, because I just, I'm very bad at like doing something if I know I'm not, it's not going to be useful in this sense. Yeah. Like, I'm not writing an essay that's actually worth being read. So, I always, I don't know, could just get rid of the whole thing. Well, <laughs> maybe that's a bit too radical to, for university. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, if you get rid of it, what do you replace it with? I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not much in favour of loads of exams and stuff, but I can see that it gets some students very motivated. So it works better for some than others, I think. It depends a little bit on your philosophy of what you're aiming for in, in life. But the thing that I really, where I, I totally agree with you, I think, is for younger children, you know, you get parents just, getting very stressed about uh, mm, nine-year-old you know coming up to some test yeah, yeah. or you know 11 plus or, or whatever it is and i just think oh my god like i was dreadful at things back at that age you know i had a school report where it said peter will never be a mathematician you know and i just totally believed it i didn't even rebel against it because i was just <laughs> so bad at that stage you know but like what were and you so, bad at oh it's yeah. just terrible at maths I mean, I just couldn't do it. You know, when I was 10, I was just awful at maths. And then... Um, well, like you didn't understand how how letters can be standard for numbers. So what was the problem? Well, well, I mean, you know, we'd sit there trying to do these maths problems and I'd read the question, try and understand it. I did. I, I was sort of patient. I would try and understand it. I wouldn't just give up instantly. But I just didn't seem to get it at all. I didn't really understand what was going on and then um i was ill it was it was a weird thing i was just ill for i was off off school for like a week or two and my parents said oh you've got to keep up with one subject at school and i was like okay it was just something where i would have been contagious i can't remember whether it was measles or what but i just had to like lounge around the house for a few days and they said oh you've got to keep up with maths and i was like oh god maths i can't i don't understand what i'm doing you know we had this book and and like the book explains stuff, but I I would read the book and just not understand it. So I thought this is totally pointless. You know? <laughs> Seemed like an absolute waste of my time to be trying to keep up with maths because I couldn't do yeah. it in the first place. So um, I found myself sitting there and I thought, well, let's just 
try and manage one question. So I'd basically never managed a maths question. And then, um, you know, I read through this chapter and I got to these questions and I couldn't do it. I didn't see how that question in any way related to the chapter yeah. I just read. And I thought, well, it must relate to it in some way. And I read through the chapter again and I thought, well, I still can't understand that. I put it to one <laughs> side, you know. I came back to it later. I thought, well, let's have, let's have one more go. And I sort of flicked backwards and forwards as I was trying to read this chapter. I kept going to the question, trying to keep it in mind, thinking, well, which part does this relate to? <laughs> It's really like nuts. And then uh, there was this amazing sort of moment where I thought, oh, hold on. Oh, that bit is a little bit like that, only a little bit different. And oh, and that bit's a little bit like that. And then suddenly it was like this crystal suddenly forming in my head, you know. I suddenly started thinking, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that 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 makes sense. I'd know what the answer is to this, like, 1A, you know. And I was, like, delighted because my whole aim was to, like, want manage... 1a by the end of the day and i suddenly suddenly it was so obvious i could do it and i thought well let's have a quick look at tomorrow's you know one let's try and do 1b tomorrow you know and i looked at 1b well of course i'd never known before that point that 1b is going to be exactly the same as 1a just with different numbers (laughs) so so i looked at 1b and thought oh my god i've done all of tomorrow's work in two seconds look let's look at one c oh yeah i've done that as well you know like you know yeah. half a minute i've done a whole week's work in my own mind you know and then i looked at like question two and thought oh it's it's a bit different i'm not sure and then you know 10 seconds later i thought no hold on it's just the same a slightly different angle so you zip through two a to two d or e or whatever it was and suddenly i was like hooked because suddenly it was like, oh, I can do this. And so I spent like, you know, I can't remember whether it was 10 days or what that was off. But I went back to school. And of course, I was way ahead in the book. We were in the, I was in like the bottom set for maths. But, um, but I was well ahead of everyone in the class. Suddenly. I went from like right at the bottom with everyone else better than me to right at the top with everyone. And at first, I just sort of thought, well, they're naturally better at maths than me. They'll just gradually overtake me. But suddenly, everything a teacher was saying made perfect sense to me because I was I had all this like clearly in my head, and they were effectively just recapping stuff I largely knew already. So I could just—it was like this foundation I could suddenly build from. Um, and so they started putting me up sets at this point. They put me in the middle set, and I thought, oh, you shouldn't do that." Sorry, sets is like how ability uh, yeah. or how good they're doing. Or... Yeah, sort of streaming. So they had like. A top, top, middle, and bottom, yeah. And before I knew it, they put me in the top set, but I still just seemed to be able to do it. It's like something had clicked in my head. That's a very strange experience. Two weeks or whatever. That's that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's really amazing. Yeah, (laughs) and without that, I would always just have thought, well, I can't do maths, you know, and I would doubtless have had a totally different life. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you did a math degree, right? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but is do you think it was more a difficulty of understanding what was expected from you, like what what you know, obviously not like a difficulty with understanding mathematical concepts, but more like what do they want from me in this exercise? Or no, I believe it was a confidence thing because I subsequently went through it again later in life when I was looking. A question, I wouldn't be 
kind of thinking, what's the answer? I'd be thinking, well, you know, can I do this? And I'd I'd have all these right. doubts and, and, you know, I'd be kind of looking for excuses of, you know, what time is it or can I do something else or, you know, any kind of distraction to save me realizing I really can't do this. Yeah, I mean, from that point on when I was at school, I just sort of stormed through things. Then I went off to college two years and for this engineering. And again, I could just do it really easily. And there was another guy in the class, Arif Kassiri. He would work really hard on it, and he was good at some topics, but he just couldn't do the maths. And I would sit there trying to explain it to him, and he couldn't. He just couldn't seem to get it. And he was like me, you know, years before. And I'd and I'd sort of forgotten. I'd largely forgotten at that point how I used to be dreadful at maths because that had been like six, eight years earlier. And so I'd sort of built this belief that I could do maths and that I was a natural at maths at that point, which is kind of crazy given my background. But then I decided to do this maths degree and everyone else had A-level maths. So in Britain, they've got this A-level system. And I didn't, I didn't have that background. So I was behind everyone again. When I turned up to uni, I was getting dreadful scores, you know, failing everything. And I was working really hard. And, you know... Day after day, week after week. I'd take deliberate breaks and things. I would try and do everything in the right way. But it just wasn't working. It wasn't going into my head right. And then when I'd been there about six weeks, eight weeks. I was eight weeks in because I was coming up to the end of the term. I was sitting there trying to do a problem, couldn't do it at all. And then I suddenly thought, hold on. This is just like one of those engineering problems I had, you know, where I would have solved it in an instant. I thought hold on, it's like that problem from, you know, a year or two back. And I suddenly realized I can do this. And I, you know, did the problem. And then I I sort of sat back in my chair and I thought, I've been looking at this for like 20 minutes before realizing, oh, it's similar to something that I could do before. And I knew that if I'd been given that same problem a year earlier, I would have just immediately done it. You know, it would have been done within a minute. And I'd sat on, since then, I'd spent all these hours studying maths, and yet I couldn't then do it. And I thought, well, what's going on? Because this is crazy. It's like I'm going backwards and I'm working so hard. And I thought, okay, and I thought, I'm like Arif now. I'm like working really hard, but I just can't seem to connect the dots. I thought, well, what's the, what, you know, what's going on? And I thought, the difference now is that rather than seeing the question and going, what's the answer, and just all my mental focus going into finding the answer, my mental focus was instead, oh, can I do this? Could there be an easier thing that I could do first that would build up? Should I be rereading something before doing this? Should I be, you know, there were all these little distracting thoughts that were stopping me. So, yeah, it was was quite a big wake-up call for me. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've got to change what I do. And for the next, like, four weeks, of the last couple of weeks of term and then some of the holidays, I, I split my time evenly when I was supposedly working. Half of it I would spend trying to do maths, and half of it I would have looked like an absolute nutter to anyone that could see me. I sat there literally saying out loud things like i can do maths i'm good at maths <laughs> i remember being good at maths yeah. i can still do maths i'm getting better and better at maths each time i do a maths problem i'm getting better and i would just, like just keep saying this sort of stuff to like rebuild that inner confidence so that when i did i'd try and then look at a problem 
full, you know, full-on concentration of let's try and solve this in a short time. And it and it seemed to work. It pulled me through. I went from definitely failing and tutors wanting me to leave the course to obviously succeeding. <laughs> yeah, very strange. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I, I kind of know what you mean. I mean, I never in school. I just didn't care. I was like, I was good enough to get like a B without thinking about it, and that's pretty much that was my school life basically. And then I, I mean, I studied psychology, so there's no maths in there. I mean, I also remember like there was one guy in school, you know, who would study really hard. Like, you know, I ba- barely listened in the class and would get like a B minus or B or B plus or whatever. And, you know, you have these people who would be studying really hard and like get an E or an F or whatever, like, you know, just yeah. doing terribly. And you could like, like, how can they not get the, Like, there's nothing to get it, right? It's, yeah, it's, 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 like, it's very obvious. Easy. Yeah. And then. <laughs> You know, I mean, of course, I had stuff I did where I didn't do well, and uh, sometimes, but like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I put in no effort and got like a B or something. But then at university, then there was one like, like to make a long story short, I was kind of doing like for random reasons one kind of math course, and then suddenly I had the same thing where I was sitting there and going like, I don't get this. And suddenly, yeah. then as soon as you have this this belief of like, I don't get this. I, I don't understand this. Then suddenly you really stop looking for solutions. Yeah, and you, you can just hit start a wall. Yeah. questioning yourself more than anything else, and you start looking around whether other people are getting it. And it was funny to me how 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 fast that happened. Um, yeah, I mean, in my case, then I didn't work through it because it really wasn't that relevant, and I just stopped doing it. And I mean, to some extent, it might also have been not a particularly well taught course. Um, yeah, that is probably part of it, but. But it didn't matter too much for you if you're already at that stage. But when it happens to someone, you know, when they're 10 or 12 or something, and they exactly. think, oh, I'm not yeah. good at maths, it's really hampering them for life. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me it was more so, yeah, I didn't have that in maths, but I had it in, I mean, I went to school in Germany, and we had, when we'd have literature analysis, be it a poem or a, a novel or whatever, I barely if ever got anything better than a C in that it was pretty much always a D just because I just didn't know what what they wanted from me and right. okay large part is also I basically never read the book so I had no idea who any of these people were in the book which doesn't help <laughs> but you know you give like an excerpt and you don't know who any of the people are that doesn't help but but nonetheless even if on, on the on the odd occasion where I either knew parts of the book or where we were giving a, a completely new excerpt or something I spent most of my time going, what do they want from me? And the funny thing is now, like, I, I like writing fiction and I, I'm on the podcast, I'm doing some sort of literary discussion. I don't know whether any of it is any worthwhile anything, but I clearly seem to enjoy it. And in school, I just never got what, what they, what was I supposed to write? I just didn't get it. And yeah, you just start questioning yourself more than actually trying to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I am in all, all topics to different levels. But certainly with maths, it's one of those strange ones where it can be really easy or really hard. And there can be a very thin line between those two. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did like a linear algebra course in the, not exactly in the lab, but with like other people from the Institute a while ago. And we did Gilbert Strang's course from MIT, the open courseware stuff they have. And it was, I always had this, like, I was not really better at understanding this stuff really than anyone else but there was this one moment where 
we were like 10 people and none of them, they said like, this was a really hard problem. And I was like, guys, this is the easiest problem of the all. <laughs> like there's nothing <laughs> even to do here. Like it, the, the problem almost like it just falls apart once you see it a certain way. And then, you know, once I explained that, they were like, oh yeah. Yeah. But if you don't, yeah, if you don't see it, then it's, if you don't see it, super yeah. Hard. yeah, it's a bit like the knight's problem in uh, chess where a knight can cover all the chess uh, squares, you know, without covering the same one twice. And then you say, well, you know, obviously you could you could have the same route but remove one of the squares. That would be easy. What about if you remove two of the squares? Let's say diagonally opposite corners. Could you remove them? And if you, you know, if you don't find the right way of thinking about it, you could spend years trying to figure out whether or not there's a route. And if you spot, oh, they're the same color, and the horse always kind of swaps colors each time it moves, so, you know, you can't take out two the same color it just won't work then you've instantly solved it so there are loads of things like that but yeah if you find the exact right angle of thinking about it you've instantly solve it (laughs) (laughs) just they're quite nice when you spot them (laughs) yeah exactly um shall we at least spend a little bit of time (laughs) talking about what i asked you to um uh I was uh, like, when I saw your, uh, you know, the biography part of your website, I thought we might be spending <laughs> a fair bit of time there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I as I mentioned, like before we started recording, this whole topic of, I mean, I keep calling it ecological rationality. Is that what, is yeah. that what you'd call it? Okay. Yeah, that's a, a term that's coming ever more into vogue at the moment. Okay, is is that what you'd use, or yeah, sometimes kind of your research, or okay, yeah. Um, maybe to start like as a kind of broad introduction like from what angle are you approaching your research or kind of why what like what's the kind of overall thing that you want to find out or yeah um, yeah yeah so i mean i'm interested in how organisms think and different thinking styles right i mean in a way i guess i'm ultimately interested in how we humans think about things but we're so complicated you know there are so many drivers in us that to try and do anything theoretical at the moment is very very tricky for humans there is there is work progressing on some fronts but it's kind of easier sometimes to take an animal that's doing things in a somewhat more simple way a somewhat smaller brain a simpler system and also where we're able to see them in their actual evolved settings you know, in their actual like natural environment. Because for humans, the world is, we've changed the world so much that in a way, we've, we're like a fish that's taking itself out of water, you know, trying to work out what we're doing and why. It can get so complicated in this modern world of, you know, why are you doing such and such? Oh, well, it, because that way I keep my job. And what's the benefit of that? Well, I keep getting paid money and what's money for and so on. I mean, it's really so such a complex web compared with why is that animal doing that? Well, it's going to be because that way it's either safer or it gains it food or water or, you know, sex or, yeah. or whatever. So it's much more of a direct way of looking at what brains are doing and why they're doing them. And, of course, we've, we have a great deal of, uh, structural similarity in our brains with with uh, plenty of vertebrates, let alone mammals. So trying to understand what different animals are doing and why and the context in which we can make sense of what they're doing 
I find very interesting. And of course, animals can make mistakes as well. But a lot of the time, if you really look at it in enough detail, there can be a logic that appears for why they're acting in a particular way or why they're learning some things and not learning others. And so for me, I think that looking at that and and making sense of it gradually is, at the moment, the right stepping stone towards building better evolutionary psychology for humans in the long run, but also for understanding our effects in the natural world and how we can help animals, you know, with with, uh, the climate change that we're putting them through as well. So there are lots of sort of interwoven aspects there. One other reason for looking at it is it can be useful for things like animal welfare to try and understand, well, you know, if an animal is acting in this particular way, is it doing that because it's worried about things or is it doing it for some other reason? So there are all sorts of different different reasons for trying to understand why different animals are behaving in particular ways. It's a funny, funny coincidence. Um, one of the last people interviewed... Desiree Brook, she, um, I mean, uh, we mainly talked about her work on cooperation and social interactions in kind of inequality aversion in dogs and parrots. Uh, but now she's working with farm animals for pre- precisely that reason to right. in- increase their kind of welfare. It's just a coincidence that, like, that's literally the last topic I talked to her about, basically. <laughs> um, and that was, I think, the last, or maybe there's another interview since. But yeah, anyway. So one thing I find slightly confusing maybe is that, so you talked about, you know, thinking about how different or studying how different animals think and that kind of stuff. And But at least the papers that I've read of yours are not really about specific animals in that sense. You know, you're not saying I'm looking at macaques versus chimpanzees or whatever, right? Or whatever yeah. it might be. It's more a a species-less or like a... a, a um, non-defined species and kind of seeing how in certain environments you know it's very abstract and it has nothing to do with at least the stuff that i've read with specific species yeah. so how do you um and maybe related to that one question i had from your website is you called yourself a behavioral scientist but as far as i can tell you you do theoretical work that's it is kind of about behaviors but in a very abstract way so i'm just yeah how do you kind of reconcile those two things yeah to be reconciled okay so so of course what we're looking for are general principles and so there are different ways of getting at those so there are plenty of people that look at things empirically so down at oxford for instance alex selnick works with starlings and various other animals and he looks at what choices they make and how they seem to learn things. And then sometimes he comes up with a mystery of why are they doing this? This seems irrational. And usually you don't want to find an answer that's specific to starlings. Right? You want an answer where you go, it's because of this general aspect of their environment that means that starlings should do this and that fish will do this. And perhaps there are some other organisms, you know, perhaps a difference between predators and prey, for instance, that means that some will do it and some won't do it. And so, yeah, you're right that most of my papers are pretty non-species specific but quite a bit of the work has uh, its kind of origins in particular species for where the mysteries came from 
And occasionally I have worked, you know, I've, I've done more specific models of different parts of the brain, how they interact and things, but those are more rare. Usually it's that, you know, I've been chatting with people that have got their hands on some real data and have got a bit of a mystery. And I think, well, can we find a general model that would that would produce this kind of seemingly mysterious behavior, but from a purely logical perspective? Right. Okay. So, yeah, taking... <laughs> solving other people's curious findings or yeah i mean that mysteries <laughs> yeah i it's basically if it becomes interesting to me as a mystery then i think it's worth solving i'm not really trying to solve it for them i'm just being greedy and solving the things that i think are interesting that others have flagged up as problematic <laughs> yeah. other people do years work of like worth of animal studies and you say this is interesting. <laughs> I'll take that problem. <laughs> I'm very <Yeah>. lazy. <laughs> yeah, really, that's a good thing in a theoretical scientist, right? <laughs> or like a, a specific kind of laziness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is a kind of fairly generic question that's not necessarily about your research, but about these kinds of findings that I've you see you I see quite a bit um, or the way that papers are framed so you know you mentioned for example you see let's say someone is studying a particular species and they find oh they do this kind of irrational behavior or something it seems to me and I mean for example you've done this sometimes when you say you know for example you have this paper optimal behavior can violate the principle of regularity yeah and as always all the references are in the description of the podcast it's kind of set up in a similar way that, for example, Karl Mantovarsky and Richard Thaler set up their papers where they say, here is expected utility theory, or utility theory, whatever you want to call it exactly, and these are some axioms of it, and look, they're wrong. And to some extent, I feel like, like when I read their papers first a few years ago, it seemed like, okay, this is really cool. But then after reading that a few times, I felt like, okay, you're kind of, is it a bit of a straw man argument to say like, oh, look, these people built this up thing and it's wrong. And it's a, kind of a nice rhetoric trick almost. And it, it makes it often nice to read a paper. But I do feel like, you know, when I read papers that come out now, I feel like, yeah, like we know, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we, we don't need to constantly say that, you know, this one model has false assumptions, um, whatever you want to call it. And this is not necessarily a critique or criticism of, your paper or that approach in the paper but i'm curious is that kind of uh like why is that still in there like why do we still need to say that yeah so that's a really good point that you raised there. quite a deep important point i think so there are different ways of attacking things and different ways of viewing something as a straw man and you're right there's a lot of work out there that says oh you know expected utility theory you know it's all well and good in theory but hey look here are all these empirical things that don't match up you know just give give out these questionnaires of a linda problem or whatever you know and it's all nonsense and you're right that's kind of been done to death and it starts losing its value once you've gone around that loop a few times what i'm trying to do is slightly different to that i would say rather than attack it on from an empirical front i'm looking at it much more from a theoretical front of at the moment there are a lot of uh people have expectations about 
the theory where they think, oh yes, if this set of assumptions, then this follows. And I'm actually, I've got various papers that show, well, no, actually, that's that's not the case, you know, that this does not follow logically from that. So it's attacking it in a different way. It's not attacking it empirically and saying, hey, we don't have, you know, the expected utility or we don't have the transitivity or whatever particular rule it is. It's, hey, we wouldn't expect to have these particular rules that always being produced because actually they're not as logical as people had been assuming. So I think there's still reasonable worth in that at the moment because not enough people have done that. And I've, I've been to, kind of doing this on various fronts with different authors, different uh, co-authors have been working with. So, you know, there are things like signal detection theory that's that's quite well known, where that's just looking at a single decision and saying, well, what should happen in this decision? You, you know, you can find a kind of positions of trade-off that where it doesn't matter which action you should take, and that should be a threshold. And then, you know, if you get a stronger signal, you should do one thing. If you get a less strong signal, you should do something else. And, you know, the maths of it is very simple to do. And you think, well, yeah, that's that's just logical. That that should be what an individual should do, given a particular question. But when you then take your blinkers off slightly and look at it from a wider angle and say, well, hold on, we don't make decisions in isolation. We have whole sequences of different decisions on different topics and sometimes similar decisions on the same topic then what happens with this system you know if now rather than it being a one-off decision where you're just trying to maximize something what happens if you're trying to maximize across a range of future possible decisions and sometimes effects can start getting reversed and trying to understand the conditions under which it would get reversed or the or a particular trend would be strengthened can help us to build a kind of deeper theory and arguably, that's meeting those longer-term calls that you've been talking about with Kahneman, Tversky, and so on, where they've been saying, hold on, look, this doesn't work, this isn't right, here are all these empirical challenges. Effectively, what they're saying is that the theory is too shallow, or the theory is in some way wrong. So what I'm trying to do is build deeper foundational theories that show when particular things would make logical sense. And, you know, that can explain some things. Of course, um, we still run into this problem of organisms are not going to be perfect all the time. They're going to make mistakes and so on. And that's where the kind of rather than it just being about rationality, it's about the ecological rationality of, given this uh, scenario, you know, scenario, there's a limit to how much thinking you actually ought to be doing, because thinking is costly. You know, if you need too big a memory, or if you need too much power to keep everything updated, then it's not going to work as well as a simpler system that is sometimes making what economists would call an irrational decision. But from a holistic mindset might be very much the best thing to do yeah you mean like say for example you have let's say you have like a time limit right you have like one second to respond to something then it makes no sense to calculate to the i mean you can't I mean, well, if you, you just are can't. Yeah. biologically limited then it's much easier or you're you're more likely to be correct in a real situation when you just use your heuristic or something like that 
Yeah, exactly. Heuristics suddenly make a lot of sense. You know, how much how much should we be able to remember everything that's happened? It's incredible how much we are able to remember, but we've got quite big heads and quite big brains compared with most animals. How much should we ponder and think things through before making any particular decision? It just makes logical sense that there would be limits. And trying to understand what those limits are and how they change for different organisms is, is uh, well, I find it quite an interesting thing to look at. <laughs> I mean, so in a way, it seems to me like kind of what you're doing is also saying that, well, number one, what uh, the optimal behavior is very context dependent. So in one context, this might be optimal behavior and this, and you kind of try and figure out then why, I don't know, maybe animals are more naturally in this context, but you ask them to do something in this context, therefore they just misapply something or whatever. But doesn't that then potentially lead to a kind of the same theory, but with a few if statements added in it? Sometimes. Sometimes it's it's simple like that, and then it's kind of boring. Um, and Or it just know. becomes a very long list. That's also kind of what I'm trying to get at, where you, right. it becomes like very much like if you're in this context, that, if you're in this context, that, and... I guess maybe that's just a sign of a theory not being developed far enough if you have to specify it so much to each context. But I'm just, it's just a general thing I'm wondering about, like to what extent, um, you know, I'm, uh, some of the stuff I'm doing is interested in a kind of loss or gain context or something. And some are putting in these if statements never seems particularly satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes down to whether you're just, putting in those if statements because, hey, that seems to solve it. Or if you're putting them in for good reasons, you know, that it would make sense that you would need this if statement here. And there, at first, that might sound like subtle distinctions, but actually I think it's quite a crucial aspect of whether there's worth to doing it. If you're just kind of looking at your data set and going, well, you know, it works if I put an if statement in here for whether if it's a loss or an expected gain kind of thing, yeah. then, then well, great. Okay, we've got some better descriptive theory. <laughs> um, I mean, which could be a good start. but Yeah, it, it might be a useful start, but it doesn't explain why something is happening from a functional perspective. So you probably know Tim Bergen's four whys. Actually don't. For some no. I've heard it a lot, but I never actually read up on it. Yeah, which is okay. something <laughs> in your you cited in one of the papers and I again like circled the citation saying, like, read this. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So can so you like goes, say what they are? Yeah, so he goes this is right back in the sixties. Nico Tinbergen was a brilliant ethologist, you know, looked at behavior of animals. And he realized that different people were talking at cross purposes a lot of the time. Different people had slightly different interests and were studying animals from different perspectives. And he realized, well, some people are trying to answer why an animal is doing something from a sort of physics perspective, if you like, causation perspective or mechanism. So the mechanistic explanation of you know, why a bird sings or something will be, well, you know, why does it sing at dawn or something like that will be, well, you know, the light's entering the eye, that triggers the receptive fields, it does such and such in the brain, that changes its testosterone level or whatever, and hey, presto, the, the bird then does its singing, you know. And that's a completely different level of explanation to various other 
answers. You know, the functional explanation would be, well, it's singing to attract mates or it's singing to protect its territory. It's a totally, totally different level of answer to the physical explanation. But he also identified two other levels of explanation. One was the ontological, so how it's developed. So it can be that it's it's choosing to copy the, the song or whatever that it's heard from its parents or its siblings or whatever and then you can look into how that's developed and how you know what stage the bird's got to with its vocal cords whatever else and another level of explanation is in terms of the genetics and how there can be phylogenetic constraints on things or you know at what point birds started to sing in different ways and and so on and these different it's these four different perspectives on why an individual is doing something. Although it started off in biology, it it has a lot of sense in psychology as well for why uh, human individuals are doing particular things. A lot of the time, people are talking across purposes to one another. And we need to keep kind of reflecting back on Timberg and going, hold on, are we actually looking at this? Are we trying to answer the same question here? Because if we're not, we're just wasting our time. So, yeah, I think it's a useful way of of trying to uh, reconcile what it is we're answering and and keep lined up on the questions <laughs> is there one of those that you're most interested in or is it yeah the... yeah so i'm usually most interested in the functional explanation of what are the payoffs you know the the benefits minus the costs kind of thing why does this behavior come about but sometimes there aren't answers there you know sometimes an individual is doing something illogical, and that's because, you know, its genes are inhibiting it from doing whatever. You know, why don't we have wheels? Well, because, <laughs> you know, because we're, we're constrained. I mean, it would be quite handy if we kind of popped out of the womb these days with our smart, smooth roads and pavements and everything with some wheels. Just roll down the hill. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, there are these limits that we have, and, and mentally we have these limits as well. But if we start off trying to explain it functionally and then hit a brick wall and go, no, we can't make sense of it this way, then it starts to make sense. Well, let's look at it from one of these other perspectives. You know, Firstly, what is actually happening? What's the mechanism that is at work? Why would this mechanism make sense? And look at it from the phylogenetic perspective and so on, which, of course, is very tricky with brains, right? Is it a bit hierarchy in that sense? Like... No function mechanism, like you know, it's like okay, that can't explain it either. Let's go one step back, almost. Or no, there's not like um, you know, you start from here and you and then you then look at this. All four are kind of valid, although they're kind of talking on different levels. It's not like one level is higher than another. At least that's my perspective on it. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're all sort of equally valid and equally niche as well <laughs> yeah, um, yeah okay so I have another kind of fairly broad question which is about when exactly an evolutionary theory is a useful theory and when not or, so I've had a, a few problems when I um, I mean this is not about your stuff but like when i read evolutionary theories in psychology or whatever it seems to me you can always make up a just so story of how yeah. things came about just so stories there you know roger kipling wrote a few famous ones where he like explains how the camel got its hump or whatever and it's some random made-up story that you know like kind of fits that and it seems to me that a lot of 
explanations can be I often don't find them particularly satisfying. I mean, in one, I think this is in your optimistic and realistic perspectives on cognitive biases. I think you mentioned, for example, well, from like this local perspective, this thing doesn't make sense. But from a more holistic perspective of animal in a larger context, it does make sense. And I always feel slightly like, yeah, you can kind of always say something like that, right? It, yeah. it feels to me it's very, it's rarely the case that you can't think of some sort of reason of why something might not be the case. So my kind of general question here is more like, when is something a good or useful evolutionary theory? And when is it more of a just so story? Yeah, well, that's that's another good question. And I think that the answer is when it starts to have predictive power. Because any theory is, you know, what's the worth of a theory? If you have a descriptive explanation of something then you know that's all well and good for explaining what's happened in the past and you know if you have exactly the same set of conditions then it might be good for describing things in the future but then the question becomes well what if the future scenario is slightly different how much has it got to change before this theory is no good and if all you've got is a description of your data, then you don't really have any foundations to build useful predictions. All you can do is say, well, maybe it'll be similar to how it was without any understanding. And the aim, of course, is to understand the system well enough that when you start getting some new data or you know, look, this is what the scenario is going to be, now we can make useful predictions. And that allows us to do planning on all levels, you know, whether it's climate change or pensions or, you know, whatever problems it is that we're facing at the time. So some of my recent work has been kind of proof of concept. And that has often not been good for predictive purposes. It's more been about saying, hold on, we've got this existing theory. There's a, there's a hole in this theory. Uh, here's a proof of concept of that fact, that this doesn't work under these circumstances. And you can kind of use that sometimes to make predictions under certain conditions. You can say, well, look, you know, if we use this slightly more advanced theory, then, then we can make different predictions to, to what we would previously have made under set of circumstances. But more of the time, it's been about identifying, no, hold on, we need to modify this theory. Here are some of the clues to what we need to incorporate. You know, under a whole range of circumstances, we need to be looking at multiple decisions, for instance, rather than one-off decisions, in order to understand uh, this, this range of different problems that we're getting. And, you know, identifying different ways of linking up the different uh, decisions across time. So some of it is about identifying future ways of getting better predictive models. But the proof of concept in itself is often not particularly worthwhile in terms of predictions. All it's really doing is predicting what they exist in theories wrong, you know. <laughs> but it's, a, it's sort of a useful jumping off point. But it ultimately, if you've got a theory that isn't good at making predictions that other theories, if it's just making the same predictions as other theories, then that's no good. If it's making different predictions and it's, doing, it's producing better predictions, then you want to understand why that is and, and there can be real worth there. Without that we, feedback... Oh, yeah, go on. Terms like better 
and that kind of stuff are always, you know, once you start to define them, it gets tricky. But for example, let's say we have something where you have a particular decision-making context and uh, like, you know, let's say a fairly specific context. And then you say, well, or that they find like an supposedly irrational behavior, but then you say, okay, look, if you look over a broad range of behaviors, then this kind of strategy would make more sense. But that also seems like a kind of dissatisfying answer to me because I'm not testing the person or the animal in all contexts. I'm just asking about this one context. Like, why right. does a why does it have to generalize to many things? If let's say you have a human, let's say right, where you you'd say, well, we we should be able to specifically adapt our behavior depending on the context we're in. I mean, why? How, for example, there's almost a trade-off, right, in terms of like how well a theory predicts specific behavior and how well it predicts overall behavior. Yeah, there's no specific question here at the end of my statement. Okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, do, you, do you see what I mean? Like, it's. I think to some extent I see what you're kind of asking. Yeah, and I'm just trying to think how best to answer that. I mean, ultimately it comes down to sometimes, you know, you might be, you've given the example of, a person has has done something. You don't understand it. You'd like to understand, you know, why are they why are they doing this in this circumstance. And if the specific model says, "Oh no, it, ideally you'd be you'd be doing X, and instead you're doing Y, and it must be because of these background things," that doesn't seem like a satisfying explanation. It only becomes a satisfying explanation if it explains things at a wider scale, not just for that one individual, but across a whole bunch of individuals or across a range of species or whatever, where suddenly the predictive power of that theory does start to pay dividends in terms of, you know, where are you going to put your money on on which theory makes the right prediction. And if that wider theory is doing a better job, then, then there's worth in it. I think the, the possibly deeper issue that you're identifying, which is problematic, is that sometimes you just get a kind of throwaway lines of, well, yeah, it's not the specific thing. It's probably this more general problem, you know, of not having enough memory or something. And there isn't really an actual theory <laughs> for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. For what, for what would happen under what circumstances, and then you know these kind of throwaway lines are just kind of annoying because they're supposed explanations for things, and they are, as you as you say, just like just those stories, <laughs> and yeah, that's irritating. So, I think there are different ways of viewing it. Sometimes when that's written down, yeah, it's just like. <laughs> rubbish filler, you know, a, a vague explana- vague sort of pseudo-explanation that doesn't actually do the job. And in other circumstances, you can get a very similar sentence in a paper, but where actually there's been some deeper thought behind it, where they're actually saying, look, hold on, we think there is a deeper theory. We don't yet know exactly what it is, but we think it's going to be along these lines. We think there's this limit in memory, for instance, due to these other ecological forces, 
and it gives you a sort of pointer into, well, hold on, we perhaps in order to understand this, we do need to look at the, you know, the mass of the extra neurons or whatever that would be required in order to be having this extra information. Then we can start to look at it as some kind of trade-off. Now, there has been some great work done on that kind of thing, you know, things like flies' eyes. Um, some really nice work at Cambridge has looked at uh, the type of the neuronal properties of signaling from a fly's eyes to its brain. And you can look at, well, hold on, there are these different types of pathways with different kind of costs in terms of weights and transmission of information and so on. And, you know, sometimes they're wired up with things that, don't give them the optimal information if you just looked at it in terms of information terms, but in terms of the actual cost to the fly of what it's having to carry around, hey, it makes sense. And so sometimes having these kind of vague pointers is just annoying, and sometimes it's actually useful for building better theory. But ultimately, it's only worthwhile if, when you've built that better theory, it's got better predictive power. Because at that point, you've thrown yourself out of it being a just-so story and back into actual science of, here's the theory, now we can test it. Just having a theory that you can't test isn't science, of course. So Yeah. I mean, maybe, so let's assume the best-case scenario where, or maybe not the best-case, we're, we're, we're disregarding the worst-case scenario of someone just saying, you know, just as a kind of... um yeah, like a pointless kind of half a sentence somewhere to satisfy someone in the review process or whatever. Yeah. But um, let's assume like a better case scenario. I'm just wondering, I mean, I, I know that theories, or one mark of a good theory is that it generalizes, you know, beyond just one context. Yeah. Because, well, it's not really a theory if it's just one specific context. But I do wonder to what extent it makes sense to have a theory that's supposed to work across species, like, you know, across a large range of species in lots of different contexts or whatever. I do wonder at some point whether it's just, um, maybe if you lack a mechanistic understanding of why that is the case, whether it even makes sense to try and, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, point, yeah. yeah, but you could ask, you know, what's the point of Darwin's theory of evolution? I mean, that's trying to cover all these different species, right? But I think most of us would agree there's, there's a real worth to it. But if you rewound the clock, you know, 150 years, and someone said, well, why are you trying to study across all species? <laughs> that's just madness. <laughs> it, your snails are totally different to humans. And, uh, I mean, you're, you're just wasting your time. And, and, and no way, it would seem like they had a valid point, right? But I think... I think there is worth in in some theories trying to go across species because when you do that, you sometimes start to identify different strata where you might. So, for instance, if you look at a you know band of monkeys or something, you might get a hierarchy within the group to see how information flows, you know, who, who's making what choice on the grounds of needing food or wanting to have sex or whatever. And having some overarching theory can encourage uh, researchers that have discovered something in their monkeys 
trying to build this general theory to go from the specific to the general that then starts getting tested in other species and the re- researchers on snails or whatever else, you know, or some, well, probably something with a bit more of a hierarchy in snails, but <laughs> uh, whales or whatever, can go, oh, hold on, there's this theory has cropped up in this totally different realm. I wonder whether it applies in this scenario. So there's there's kind of some worth at the intellectual level there, but I think the deeper worth is in things like how different species do need to be before the generalizations aren't good. So if you look at uh, migration patterns of birds, for instance, you can look at a particular species, like white-crowned sparrow or something, and say, okay, as temperature goes up by a degree or two, and they start changing their flight patterns and whether they're doing you know, a stopover en route to a particular place. You know, does that have some predictive power for other species? When would we expect there to be worth in that? And when wouldn't we? We Understanding that kind of thing is really important if we're going to save some of these species. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm more getting to. Like, when would you expect a theory to apply to a specific context? Mm. Because I guess there has to be some sort of reason rather than being a kind of generic statement, yeah. Yeah. But th- does is that problem then just solved by knowing the specifics of the situation you're trying to apply it to? Well, so, I mean, it's a very, very difficult problem, first of all. Right? I think that's worth recognizing. This. You know, you've, you get a particular well, thing like in one species. we've got like two, three species. minutes left. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You get one particular thing in one species, will it apply in another? It's extremely difficult to know. But at least if you've got some functional understanding of why a species might be doing something, of why it's changing its flight pattern or whatever, then you start to have at least some inkling of whether another species is is more or less likely to do it. And that's just because we start to get inklings about what the theories are likely to look like, even if we've not got them pinned down well enough yet. So I think it's the right route to go to at least be trying to do this. (laughs) And, and, you know, the criticism that, hey, the, the theories aren't good at the moment, although it's true, I don't think it's a general criticism in terms of, well, what are we going to do? I mean, we we need to strive for theory in some form in order to make any predictions. So that's that's why I continue to press in that direction. <laughs> okay, cool.